You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 394, Saved by Grace or Judged According to Works, with Dr. Kent Yinger. I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike, how you feeling? Well, I'm in a non-chemo week, so I, I feel pretty good, except when I look at the Naked Bible Fantasy Football League, and then that mm. makes me feel a little bit worse. Yeah, me too, Mike. I lost by less than a point. Well, I'm 0-3 and in last place. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're... We're both at the bottom. It's not. We're, we're uh, both pretty pathetic, aren't yeah, we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't even want to talk about it, Mike. I, I'm, yeah. I'm probably siding with the listeners. I'm over it. I'm over fantasy football. I'm over it. <laughs> it only took three weeks to beat it out of you. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. No, just, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'll never be done. I'm going on 26 years, and I'm going to do at least another 26. So. Oh man. Yeah. It's just but, brutal. Yeah, but other than that, everything's good. I mean, uh, no new updates. Yep. You just status quo. Everything's. Yeah, I, th- I think I think we've sort of got the the routine down. When I when I go in for chemo, I, you know, it's every other week. I go in on a Wednesday. I get unhooked on a Friday, and then uh, Saturday and Sunday, I'm still kind of getting hammered by it. So I, I've got five days of five days of misery, followed by nine days of of. Yeah significantly less misery. I mean, it, it's, no. it's not, I'm not normal, but, but it's certainly uh, tolerable. So I think that's the way it's just going to roll. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Well, do you know how many cycles you have to go through? No. Okay. No, the, the, the plan is we haven't give, we haven't put this out on an update yet. So this is a good place to do it. Um, the plan is after the third one, which is, you know, imminent, um, they are going to do another scan another CAT scan uh, of me so that they can see if and to what extent and, and in what way the the tumor is responding. And at that point, they'll loop in uh, the surgeon just so we have a, a surgical person that can see the before and after. And then, you know, they'll say, oh, yeah, well, it looks like you're going to need three more weeks or five more cycles or whatever, you know. Nobody really knows until we see what, what the response is. And then we just sort of go from there. Good deal. Continued prayers as always. Well, Mike, uh, today we're talking about uh, something we've already talked about before. I know I've referenced uh, the podcast that you've done about uh, grace versus works and salvation and all that good stuff. So I yep. take it um, you found somebody that wrote a book. Yeah, I, yeah, I did. I, it, it's an older book, as uh, listeners will find out when we bring um, our, our guest on. Uh, the book was actually published in 1999, but it's it, it's you know what we look for lots of primary source material that, that situates the New Testament in this case Paul specifically in the context of Second Temple Jewish thought when it comes to affirming that salvation isn't something merited or owed by God to us to believers, but nevertheless, you know, even though it's by His grace. God judges according to works. Like, like, how do we put those two things together? And so our, our guest has written specifically a book on this. It was his dissertation. 
uh, way back in the 90s. And I think this will be a really good discussion because this is a question that's not going to go away. We get it in Q&A, as, as you alluded to, and just in, in general discussion. So I think this will be a good episode to orient people to not only the discussion, but a good resource for the whole question. Well, we are excited to have Kent Yinger with us. Uh, Kent is a New Testament scholar. I'm going to let him introduce himself. This is typically due, uh, Kent, when we have guests on. If, if you could just tell us a little bit about who you are, you know, where you went to school, what your doctoral work was, what you taught. I, I know you're retired now. And, you know, where you taught. Just, well, just enough to get the uh, audience, you know, acquainted with you, give them a feel for you know, who you are and, and what you really enjoy as far as your your uh, academic points of expertise. Great. Thanks, Mike. Great to be with you here and with your listeners as well. I grew up in the Midwest in Kansas. I did my studies at Wheaton and Gordon-Conwell Seminary and then Sheffield University in England. Uh, we spent about 15 years working as missionaries in Germany, then came back and I uh, taught uh, for a little while at Fuller and worked there as well, and then moved up to Portland in 2001, where I uh, began to teach for Portland Seminary, it used to be called George Fox Evangelical Seminary, and uh, taught there for 13, 14 years and retired about seven years ago. I have uh, a wife been married to for over 40 years. We have three grown children, five grandchildren, still live in Portland. And I love to golf. Anyway, that's a little little of who I am. Well, what what I want to do to start off this topic is, you know, sometimes people can't really tell what the episode's going to be about, what the discussion's going to be about by virtue of the title. And uh, we, we really want to have the discussion revolve around your book, which is the publication of your dissertation. And the the book, the published book, was titled Paul, Judaism, and Judgment According to Deeds. And that was uh, published in the uh, Society for New Testament Studies, the monograph series. It's number 105 by Cambridge University Press in 1999. So this is an older book, but just trust me, it, it has not lost and will not lose its relevance because the book is about, you know, how do we how do we handle Paul's statements, you know, his, his assertions, and they're clear uh, that we are saved by grace through faith. And then you flip the page, you know, anyone, you know, given Pauline letter, it seems, and he's talking about being judged according to deeds. And we, we often get uh, questions like this. I get them in email. We, we've, we've done, you know, a number of probably almost 50 Q and A's by this point. And this will pop up uh, now and again. So what I'm going to do to acquaint the audience with where you're going, and then we'll just jump into it, is I'm going to read uh, a little bit from the intro, page one of your book. And then I also have the dissertation uh, in front of me, and I'm going to read a little bit from the dissertation uh, as far as the abstract. And I think this will orient readers. So in his book, Kent wrote this to begin particularly since the Protestant Reformation interpreters of Paul have pondered over the meaning of judgment according to deeds in the light of justification by faith alone. According to Romans 2, 6 through 11, and let me just interject here, especially verse 7, God will repay with eternal life those who do good 
Yet in Romans 3.28, quote, a person is justified by faith apart from works, unquote. And Kent continues and says, yet in spite of the immense effort expended by scholars to resolve this puzzle, no consensus or even large-scale agreement on how to relate the two elements in Paul's thought has been reached. So that's from page one of the book. And the dissertation, which if for those in the audience who have uh, access to things like ProQuest Dissertation Database, which I realize is a minority of this audience, you could get this. But I, I highly recommend the book in its place because, as, as Kent points out in the prefatory material, this, this is a revision. And, you know, having looked at both, just trust me. Books that get careful revision and editing often, you know, sound better, you know, than dissertations. Dissertations read a particular way. So I want to promote uh, the book. It's, it's, not, it's not something you have to go to the bank and get a loan for, you know. <laughs> you, know where, you know, oftentimes the books we recommend here are super expensive, but this is not. This is, this is going to be affordable and I highly recommend it. But in the dissertation, Kent writes, Paul's use of the motif of judgment according to deeds corresponds terminologically, rhetorically, and theologically with its use in Second Temple Judaism. In order to to demonstrate this thesis, the author examines the tradition history of the motif in the Jewish scriptures, i.e. the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament pseudepigrapha, and the Qumran literature, the Dead Sea Scrolls. By the beginning of the Common Era, it's first century A.D., Quote, judgment according to deeds, unquote, is a widespread fundamental theological axiom applicable to a variety of rhetorical purposes. The motif has an important soteriological function within what is now commonly termed Jewish covenantal gnomism. And for our audience, that, the, the definition of that is, and you know, Kent uh, you know, brings this you know, into the discussion a little bit later, but he notes that what the term means is salvation is not earned by human initiative or merits, but it is granted freely by God's election and the giving of the covenant. One gets in, quote-unquote, by grace. Within this covenantal relationship, however, obedience to God's will, the law, is required. Now, that's, that's a quote from page three of, of the book, and he's following E.P. Sanders there. I, my audience knows that I would, I would adjust and, and, and pick at some of the, the, the wording uh, that Sanders uses there. And we might get to that toward the end of, of the episode. But what, what Kent is, is saying here is that it's very important to realize that Judaism itself, in this period between the Testaments, if if you're reading the your, your scriptures, you know, the, the Word of God, the Hebrew Bible, with any sort of, I hate to say it, intelligence, you're going to know that you're not meriting salvation as a Jew. That is not why you are saved. You don't you don't earn it. So that that part, you know, Paul obviously is very consistent with. And in the dissertation abstract, Kent goes on and says, "This judgment, okay, that that you know, this is consistent with covenantal gnomism, the Judaism of the intertestamental period. This judgment does not entail a one-for-one recompense of good or evil deeds. So when Paul, when when the discussion shifts." to judgment according to works. It views works holistically. The, the, the idea is that your heart is revealed in this judgment. So one's deeds do not earn or merit God's grace or salvation. Nevertheless, one's recompense, the blessings or curses of the covenant, 
will be congruent with according to whatever the pattern of behavior, whatever the, the, the pattern of your heart is. And so this is where Kent is going in the book. He, he, he's going to recognize, yes, we have a situation where, like Paul, Jews before him in the intertestamental period understood that salvation was not by works. Now, right away, that, that, that's, that might not sound correct to a lot of listeners, because we're used to thinking of Jews in that way. That's not the case, and we're going to talk about that today. And then on the flip side of the coin, when there is a discussion in the intertestamental period and in Paul about judgment according to deeds, it's not about meriting salvation. We should be over that hump already. It's, a, it's about God's response to you know, sort of the, the, the pattern of, of a person's heart, uh, where they're at. That they're, they're, the pattern of, of, of their heart will tell you if they believe or not. And so with, with that little bit of an introduction, uh, Kent, let's just jump in here, because again, th- this, is, this is the whole faith and works discussion. I think uh, our listeners can tell that right off the bat here, that this is where we're going. And again, we often get questions about this. And as Bible students, you run into these passages and you don't know what to do with them. Why is Paul, why does he seem to contradict himself? Well, he's not as we're going to talk about it. So my first question to, to loop you back in here is, obviously scholars have noted this for a very long time. Anybody who's, who's a Bible student has run into both sides of this. So let's start with the scholars. How have scholars tried to reconcile these two ideas in the past? I mean, before you, you did your dissertation and wrote the book, how are what was the discussion like in, in scholarly circles? How did they try to cope with this? Yeah, and uh, it really hasn't changed a whole lot uh, since 1999 when the book came out. Uh, there are there are some scholars who would say these two poles can't be reconciled. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul was simply inconsistent. One thinks of the Finnish scholar Heike Reisinen. My my kind of my own response to this and and how most people actually respond to Raisinen's suggestion is that while it's not impossible, of course, theoretically, that Paul could have been an inconsistent, incoherent thinker, this should be, for most of us, a, a solution of last resort <laughs> after try, trying everything else, because otherwise, Paul doesn't seem like an incoherent thinker when you read mm-hmm. his letters. He seems fairly careful and knowledgeable about what he's talking about. And it's not like he says, you're saved by faith, and then he turns the page and sort of forgets yeah, that he just he, said that. It says, yeah, oh, yeah, re- by the way. He, he's going to reference the Hebrew Bible on both sides. Yeah. And so, you know, while it's not theoretically impossible that Paul was incoherent, um, I, I would think a person would want to go there as a very last resort. So those that continue to try to resolve uh, this puzzle, I— uh, Probably the majority, at least of evangelical folks, would say that justification by faith without regard for one's works must have priority. This is how they resolve it. It's by giving priority kind of to one side of Mm -hmm. the polarity. And one thinks of Martin Luther here. There have been a lot of authors since. Uh, There's a fellow, Barry Smith, that's wrote a couple of books in the early 2000s, What Must I Do to Be Saved, and so on. And they represent what one could call monergism, 
or um, God's action in salvation has absolute and sole priority. He does it all. And so judgment according to deeds, that is where our activity comes into view, is not for determining salvation or justification. That's Mm -hmm. by faith alone. But that judgment is for something else. And a lot of folks would say, well, it's just for rewards. It's kind of for like the cherry on top. You're going to get in no matter what, but whether you're going to have two crowns or five crowns or there'll be gold or silver or what, Mm -hmm. that depends on how well you live. But it doesn't have to do with whether you get in. Uh, Others would, uh, because this kind of, this creates another judgment, a reward judgment, uh, which is problematic because you don't really find it clearly in the Bible. (laughs) Uh, some would say, well, it's not, it's not for rewards. It's uh, the judgment according to deeds is a sort of secondary confirmation of one's justification by faith. It can't endanger or overturn that verdict by faith, but it just sort of gives a secondary confirmation. And it may or may not be entirely in line with what one would hope for. So this is a little squishy, I know, but... Uh, <laughs> Well, it, it, what 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 strikes me about it is that okay, yeah, there's there's you know a couple of passages where you know Paul talks about our works and wood hay and stubble and rewards and but but to sort of glom on to that as though the other side doesn't exist, you know, in, in other words, a negative judgment. Right. I don't know how you're doing that because there's there's a lot of that kind of talk. There really is. There really is. So those are the folks that would give. justification by faith apart from works, priority, absolute priority. There are a few who recently, particularly, who suggest the opposite, that judgment according to deeds has priority. That is behavior, human behavior has priority in determining salvation. This is in some ways um, a reflection of what we used to think Judaism taught and what Mm -hmm. Luther thought the Roman Catholic Church taught. Uh, so that people are saved then by obedience and not by faith alone. And you can think of a few scholars recently. Uh, Chris Van Landingham has written uh, an influential book recently where, at least as I read it, he seems to be suggesting this. And there are others as well. Uh, and what they're doing is saying, look, the place of obedience in Paul's thought is a lot more important and determinative than the Lutheran side has given it credit for. And so they've, in my view, have kind of flopped over to the other side pretty far and, uh, and are representing that. Well, yeah, then, for, for our audience, the, the key word here is determinative. You know, like, 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 you know, in other words, there's a cause and effect relationship. So I don't want people to miss that, but go, go ahead. No, absolutely right. Good, good clarification. Uh, And then lastly, there are some, like myself, who suggest that Paul saw no conflict or tension between these two poles. I mean, everything we've said thus far sort of assumes that Paul felt a tension whenever he said these two things, saved by faith, Mm -hmm. you're judged according to works. And my book started from the premise, I couldn't find any tension in Paul. he seems to be able to say these two things 
with no sense that there's a conflict in what he's saying. I mean, let's just read one passage uh, where that comes out, I think, very clearly. And this is 2 Corinthians 5. And I'm reading from the New Revised Standard. We are always confident, even though we know that while we're home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Now here, clearly, Paul has his living by faith in view. Yes, we do have confidence. So this is a matter of real confidence now and forever. And we would rather be away from the body and at home in the Lord. He's even thinking of the future and the afterlife. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. It's like all of a sudden, he moves immediately to how we live. Mm -hmm. We make it our aim to please him. For why do we do that? All of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, our, our bodily lives, how we act, whether good or evil. Uh, and this is this judgment. It's not. Anyway, it uh, it seems to me, Paul says this. he doesn't say, now, wait a minute, don't misunderstand me, which is what we mm-hmm. in our normal theology would feel the need to insert. And Paul never feels that need. And so that puzzled me. And that really pro- kind of was the impetus for studying this thing. Why, why didn't it puzzle Paul? <laughs> <laughs> why didn't Paul have this question about Paul like we do? <laughs> and, you know, the funny thing was that the more I studied the Old Testament and intertestamental uh, literature, I found they didn't have any difficulty either. And so I suddenly thought, well, gee, maybe Paul thought like they did. And if we could understand them better, yeah. we might understand him better. Yeah. You know, it, it, this is why, and, and my audience is used to this. We, you know, we did a whole series on Hebrews and you hit it in Colossians. We did a series on that too. And But whenever I get this question, I the, the first thing I do is I inject merit into it. This idea that, oh, well, so, so you're thinking, or you're thinking somebody else is thinking that salvation is deserved. I mean, when you start using words like merit and deserved, when, when we get into this abstract faith and works thing, typically people, you know, are, are going to recoil at that because it it just sounds so icky, you know, theologically, <laughs> like like God is in our debt, and and they're going to deny that. No, 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 that, that's not what I'm talking about. Well then what are you talking about? I think it's a good way to to help people sort of examine why they're using the wording they're using and what they mean and don't mean by the vocabulary. That's and, right. And I, That's I, I mean, point. I have had this sense for a long time, just like you you articulated in the, in the Old Testament. I mean, what what Israelite, you know, who was who was literate and could actually read the Torah, you know, and sort of knew the heritage of what's going on there. I mean, show me the Israelite that would think that God owes them something. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and it, it's just so empty. It's, well, well, if that's not what's in view, then maybe this language about obedience, may, maybe we need to think about it differently and, and use different words so that we can get at what, you know, what is meant and what is not meant. So I, yeah. Again, I'm having you on the show because you know when when I read this, it's like, yeah, you know, this is this is really wrong-headed to think of 
Old Testament Judaism as being some kind of works salvation thing, you know, as though God God is is now you know owes us something. We've put it by virtue of the way we behave now. Now we've put him in our debt. Well, that, it's just absurd. You know, I, absolutely. I think every Jew in the ancient world would have agreed entirely with you. Yeah. So I, I had that sense early on, you know, and, and I, it's been really helpful uh, to me when, when we get to talking about these things. So, so uh, since we're, you know, flirting here with the Old Testament. So you're very clear the Old Testament doesn't teach salvation by works. But let's say you have somebody in the audience or somebody in, in your class. I'm sure you had students, you know, in your class saying, well, it sure looks that like that way to me, Dr. Yinger, you know, look at this verse or whatever. What about obedience to Torah? It, it, it looks like, you know, we're, they were saved by the, their measure of obedience. How would you go about answering that? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a huge subject. I don't know if we can completely get into it um, here. I mean, those that feel that way, they're obviously right that the Old Testament is interested in how people behave, how they how they obey, how well they obey, how often, how fully they obey. And there's a lot of talk about commandments and keeping mm -hmm. the commandments and so on. So that's all there. Nobody needs to deny that. The question becomes, so why were they do? Why did they think they were doing these yeah, things? What's the point? <laughs> yeah. Um, and at least for Protestants, we assume they did it because they wanted to get on God's good side. They wanted him to smile on them, to be happy with them. And the way they would do that, so it's argued, was by doing what he wanted. So God is kind of skeptical, and if you do enough, if you please him enough, then maybe he will be happy with you, and he'll let you in at the end. And that's kind of a simple way of painting the picture. And uh, most of us in the in the Biblical Studies Guild would say, well, that, that really misses what's going on there. The most Israelites thought God was already happy with them. He had called this slave nation out of Egypt uh, not because they were worth anything. They were one of the least of all peoples in the ancient world, and yet he set his love upon them. This is mm. what grace and election are all about. Deuteronomy they, 7. Exactly. And so, um, you know, they thought God was already happy. Well, then why do you do anything? Well, the same reason in any relationship you do things to please your partner because you love them. And this is exactly how Israel's situation worked. Why were you to keep the law? Because you love God. And God loves you. And this is how the relationship is set up. So it's not to earn anything, but at the same time, that obedience is important. Um, you know, you think of a marriage and a husband who says, I love you, and then uh, cheats on his wife and spends all the money and doesn't have anything for the kid's clothing. You think, well, wait a minute, this, mm -hmm. this isn't going to work. Well, it's not going to work between the people of God and their God the same way. Yeah, you know, and this 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 creeps into, you know, what I'll use the term evangelical, even though I don't know that it really fits. But like, um, I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, Messianic Christianity or your Jewish believers in Jesus. And, and th there's a full spectrum there. We, we recently had uh, Seth Postel on the podcast who you know, does a really good job of navigating the Christian and the, and the law. But there, there are some that, 
you know, will, I don't even know what the right word is, retroject or, or, or take this assumption. Okay, I don't know if I can come up with a single word, but they'll take this assumption about merit and earning and wanting God to be happy with them. And as Jewish believers in Jesus or, or a Messianic particular congregation, this will actually become part of their identity. You know, well, look at those look at those believers over there. They don't, you know, observe Torah calendar. They don't do this Torah, that Torah. You know, everywhere there's a Torah. You know, and and the and the question always becomes, well, what do they lose by that? Why? What's the harm? And it, there are some that will traverse into this territory, even though you and I would agree, Judaism didn't. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But but it's almost like this is sprinkled this 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 reformed notion. <laughs> This is going to sound really odd. This reformed notion of what Jews were thinking gets sprinkled onto Messianic Judaism. It's hmm. just really odd, but 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 you'll see it sort of crop it, it, its head up there. And and I think maybe one of the reasons is is because dare I say that that Judaism now I, I think can overread their own Bible and sort of drift off into this. Into this into this direction, and they really don't have a, a full grasp of Old Testament theology. I mean, it's, that sounds audacious to say that that rabbinic Christianity or modern Judaism has sort of missed the boat with biblical theology. But I'll say that because if if this is the if, if this is the track you're on, that we're we're making God happy with us as opposed to anybody else, these Gentiles or whatever, well then then you've really missed what's going on in the Hebrew Bible and. I, I, th- I think since we tend to jump from the Old Testament to the rabbis, we we, we can fall into that. And, and and what your book does a great job of is, you know, again convincing people, no, you shouldn't just jump, you know, to the rabbis. What we need to look at is the the, the Judaism that Paul would have been familiar with, the Judaism that preceded, okay, his his own era, the, that that he would have been very familiar with the writings and and the studies. The literature of what we call the intertestamental period or the Second Temple period. So this this raises the question: Okay, if you don't think that that the Hebrew Bible taught salvation by works or merit, what about Second Temple Judaism? Did something change so that Paul had this in his head, or again, is that a misreading? Uh, I think it's a misreading, and most who've studied the uh, Second Temple literature would agree as well that that it continued with some variety now but uh, but it basically continued this covenantal view of the relationship between God and Israel um and of the way that Israel's allegiance faith and trust in their God uh cohered with their way of life and their obedience to his commandments yeah. and again the the covenantal idea you know, if if I can, you know, play the part of God here, God would look at an Israelite and say, "You do realize, don't you, that you didn't merit the covenant? You didn't merit inclusion in the covenant. You're in the covenant. There is a covenant because I decided that there would be one." And yeah, and in I, fact, and I loved you. So, so there we go. For Second Temple Jews, I think the temptation lay more on the other side. That is, we think the temptation was to view oneself as meritorious, as having earned something, uh, because that was Luther's struggle, mm-hmm. and we've inherited that, and it's in our bloodstream. But um, 
On the other side, Jews' temptation was to think that they were somehow better, that is that they they were the favored ones. Mm-hmm. And this is what uh, Paul struggles with much more than issues of merit. So you read in Romans, what he's really concerned about, do we have an advantage over the Gentiles? That's really where, um, and that's a lot of Second Temple literature is they are trying to figure out, if you will, how does Israel's privilege work itself out without becoming pride and haughtiness? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, just to telegraph, we, we may loop back to that, but you know, it, it works its way out if we think of the Abrahamic covenant. <laughs> you know? oh, I think so, yeah. Right? The, the whole reason you people exist is because God wanted a new Adam, okay, a new people, and he goes about supernaturally intervening in the lives and really the bodies of, of Abraham and Sarah so that you would exist. And, and he disinherits, you know, humanity at, at, at the Babel event. But he, but that's not, a, that's not intended to be a permanent thing. Because as soon as he calls, you know, Abram and, and, and Sarah and enables them to have a child who's going, and that's where Israel's going to come from, he makes a covenant that includes the nations. You know, so, you know, and the whole kingdom of priests idea. Oh, gosh, what do priests do? Well, one of the things they do is they're, they're mediators. You know, <laughs> it, 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 it just seems like it, it, it shouldn't have gone unnoticed. Yeah. But I, yeah. but I agree with you. I, I do, I do see that when, when Paul gets into conversations with Jews uh, in his writings, you, it's hard to miss that. I mean, that, that pops up a lot this sort of assumption of superiority or or the assumption that since we're the elect, you're not. And and, and that's like your destiny. <sighs> yeah. Well, and for Paul, of course, the big challenge was there were some in the early Jesus movement that thought you had to become Jewish. Sure, yeah. In order to get in or to please God. And so this was Paul's struggle. Well, no, you don't. If you're a Gentile, can you remain a Gentile, a non-Jew, and still be okay? And he said yes, and some said no. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an example of maybe our, our this audience will be familiar with the Book of Enoch and, and Jubilees, at least, and of course, wider, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, maybe not with particular scrolls. But uh, can you give give us maybe one or two examples in Second Temple literature where it's pretty clear that they're not thinking about salvation in terms of their own merit. Yeah, I was just, uh, I was looking at uh, the hymns in the Qumran scrolls, mm-hmm. the Thanksgiving hymns, uh, 1QH is kind of the technical designation. And um, in column nine, uh, you find the, uh, the psalmist saying, thy loving keeping is for the saving of my soul. Clearly not attributing it, that is, to his own efforts. It's God's loving keeping that leads to the saving of his soul. Over my steps is abundance of pardon, and when thou judgest me, greatness of mercy. I mean, here's, I mean, you can imagine Luther uh, or Paul saying this from a full heart. But then you go to column six, just a little bit earlier. And he said, I knew there was hope for them that are converted from rebellion and that abandoned sin. Yeah, so there you have walking. both sides of the coin, yeah. And he got both of it right there. And 
anyway, the wed this wedding of divine mercy and the demand or expectation of human allegiance, uh, I think you find throughout this literature. And it's really, it's not a big issue for them. Uh, just like we wouldn't make a big issue of a husband and wife loving and caring for one another and being kind to one another. Sort of, well, this is kind of how it works. Mm -hmm. Now, you've said a couple times already, you know, you've used the D word, uh, determination. Uh, you've pointed out that you know, judgment according to works need not and really should not be understood as some sort of determination of salvation. That, that isn't that isn't the why of the judgment. Well, we got to figure out if you deserve it or not, you know. Uh, so if the judgment of works isn't the basis of salvation for the believer, what is? And, and what does the judgment accomplish? Uh, how, how would you think about that? Um, well, I think for Paul, clearly, what is the basis is Christ. For mm -hmm. Paul, Christ has become the end all of his theology. It, it, in a way, it's changed everything, but we have to be careful when we say that. It doesn't mean that it overturned everything he previously thought. What it did is it gave him a new lens through which to view yeah. all of that. Um, so I think Paul's theology in many ways is fully in line with Second Temple Jewish theology, except for the coming of Messiah mm -hmm. and the place of Messiah mm -hmm. within the overall working of God's, uh, of God's plan for the nations and for Israel. Um, you know, for, for our audience, think, think of it, think of it this way. Okay. So we've spent, you know, a good 15, 20 minutes here talking about the basis of salvation in the Hebrew Bible, and, and Second Temple Jewish writers understood this, was mercy, the mercy of God, the grace of God, okay? The, God's decision to offer salvation and, and have this covenantal relationship. So, you know, there, there's, a, there's, if you will, a grace or a mercy slot or component to this, and it's really it's really the only component when it comes to salvation. But there's this this aspect of one's relationship to God that is mercy and grace. So Paul believes that as a Jew, he believes that already. But what he does is is in in the mercy slot, or you know he'll he'll substitute or swap in the mercy component is Jesus, and that that's the fundamental difference. That's how he defines here. He comes to to define and 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 wants his Jewish audience to 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 see that component, to see that slot filled, not by merely the fact that a covenantal relationship exists, but here we have this one Jesus of Nazareth who came to fulfill the law, who came to be the the second Moses, who came to you know all these things that Paul talks about. That that now he is the orienting point for understanding the grace of God, the basis of salvation. Do you think that's a, a reasonable summary of, of sort of the relationship between the two? Yeah, in some ways. Um, I th it seems to me Paul still thinks that we need to—Jews need to listen to God, follow God, sure. love God, and keep the law. But once God has spoken in Christ, has sent Messiah— and has revealed his will in him, which is really little different than the will he already revealed in the Torah, then one cannot say, I love God and I seek to orient my life towards him, 
if one at the same time rejects what God has just said, that sure. is Christ. <laughs> and so I think for Paul, this is really the, the crucial point, and this is why he's so insistent um, in Romans 9 through 11 and other places that uh, Christ is the end of the law, not that the law comes to an end or has no longer any role, but mm-hmm. that uh, it's the Christ, destination it, point. Yeah, yeah. He's the determinative point. He's the he's the crucial issue now. Anyway, so. Yeah, no, I I I would agree. You know that again. The, the, these things to me, and I, I think to a lot of people in this audience, are going to be you know somewhat transparent. But but there are going to be a lot of people who listen to this that that they they need to hear the discussion. And and to me, the discussion is important because of consistency. Consistency across the testaments, you know, as as far as you know, why you know, what must I do to be saved? Well, you need to you need to trust God. You need to to believe the things He tells you, and and it doesn't stop there. You don't you don't say, well, I I, I love you now, now I'm going to go rebel. <laughs> you know, um, you know, for for me personally, the, this sort of came to a head in my mind when I realized that how incoherent it was to think that. See, I, I'm one of these people that I think Old Testament election has been fundamentally misunderstood because you have this notion that, well, Israelites were elect, so therefore they're guaranteed eternal life. Really? Like we had this thing called the exile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, you know, it, you, you, you don't, we don't have Baal worshippers in heaven. I'm sorry. You know, you, you, just because they had a status or, or an opportunity, they had access to the true God. I like to use the word access a lot. They had access to the truth where others did not. They still need to embrace it, and they need to reject all of its competitors. They need to reject other gods. They need to reject what the other gods promise or what they command. or what it, there, there has, there's, there's an aspect of exclusivity to the relationship that is illustrated by how we obey. It's illustrated by, by what we do. By virtue of what we do, this is where we're at. This is what we believe. This is who we're aligned with. This is this is so you can tell. <laughs> That's right. You know. So when I, I don't know what it was that, that that sort of you know sparked that in my head you know, years ago, but just the the awful incongruence of of talking about election as though it were some guarantee when it comes to you know Old Testament Israel here. And I, and I would say just across the board, it, we shouldn't be thinking of election in terms of a guarantee. I, I think there's there's a better way to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. That, you know that 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 honors the, the this whole idea that that we've been you know trying to articulate here. But when I realized that, well, if it means a guarantee, you got you got you got Baal worshippers in heaven, you got Ashtoreth worshippers. I wonder how that works, because it's <laughs> right. like, well, I, I'm in because I'm an Israelite. Look, you know, I have the DNA or something. You know. <laughs> Ethnically, that's where I'm at. So I, I have to be in because we're elect. And no, 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 no. It just you, you never see that any of that kind of thinking affirmed. And so I, I I think because we haven't really thought sufficiently about something as obvious as the exile, like who wants to study the exile? That's just awful. It doesn't make me feel good. <laughs> yeah. Um, we 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 just sort of bypass this. We we miss it. So, so what in in your mind is is the judgment about? What is it? What does it accomplish? If if you if we were sitting down here with with Paul and, and with Jews that had preceded him, you know who's getting judged by works? You know, broadly speaking, and and why? What 
what's the what's God's logic? What's the scriptural logic behind it? Well, I think Paul, like all Second Temple Jews, was clear. Uh, as he says this in Second Corinthians five ten, for we must all stand mm-hmm. before the judgment. So I I think Paul is universal here. He sees this as a universal judgment that issues in either salvation or damnation, to put it in simple terms. What it does is to reveal publicly the character or the faithfulness of God's people, leading either to praise or to shame. And uh, it telegraphs where they were at. Yeah. In other words, during your life, the way you behave normally reveals what's in your heart, who you love, what you value. Do you care about God or don't you care about God? Well, how you live reveals that. Now, not perfectly. We all go astray. We may even have seasons of what you could call weakness, uh, where we don't do what we deepest in our deepest heart think is right. But at some point, we come back, we return, we repent. And um, that pattern of one's life is what will be publicly revealed at this judgment so that it's not kind of a one. It's not like God sets up and he opens his book. He says, "Okay, on this day, you did this and you get a check mark or you get a bad mark or whatever. This is sort of what I call. Somebody asks, he's got that information. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I think God knows all, but I don't think that's how it works. (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, the judgment, it's a picture, a metaphor that one's way of life. This is why. the psalmists talk about, judge me according to my way. That is, what's my pattern of life? Um, anyway, so... Can you can you walk us through like Romans 2? You mentioned Romans 2 before. And just, you know, like, like read, read the text and just sort of annotate it for us in light of this discussion. Yeah, I mean, Romans 2 is just such an astounding uh, text of Scripture where Paul's trying to... Uh, lay out his gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But that raises the question, well, is there an advantage to being Jewish? Uh, Do you have to become Jewish to get in? So on. So he's wrestling with all of these questions of his gospel. And he gets uh, into chapter two. And I'll just, I'm rather than giving a thorough exegesis of everything, let's just start at verse six. Uh, For he will repay according to each one's deeds to those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. Now, that that's an astounding statement for the gospel, for the apostle of grace. He Mm -hmm. will give eternal life to those who do good. Wow. Uh, While for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but wickedness, wrath, and fury. So here we've got the traditional two ways theology. Mm -hmm. There's a way of glory that is the way of obedience. There's a way of shame, which is the way of disobedience. He then flips it and kind of goes back through the same material. There will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil. But he adds something now, the Jew first and also the Greek. So now he brings in this relationship of Jew and Gentile into the equation. Mm -hmm. Glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good 
the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Now, traditionally, uh, Protestant theology, at least, has argued that Paul is in many ways speaking hypothetically here. He doesn't really believe, we would say, that if you do good, you will get eternal life. He thinks that's by faith alone, by grace alone. Here, we're back to these discussions of mm-hmm. where's the priority mm-hmm. and so on. Yeah, and, and words like get, you know, this this deterministic language, yeah. yeah. And But I more and more have, have been, I have felt for a long time that Paul means every line here, and he means it as a Christian apostle in Christ. He still holds these truths, these axioms, deep in his heart, and they, they, uh, he really believes that, that you must patiently do good and seek for glory and honor and immortality if you would be one of those who enjoys eternal life. In any case, the question becomes, well, if that's true, then don't Jews have an Im- immense advantage because they have the law telling them what is good? Whereas the Gentiles are just, they're lost in the dark. They don't have a clue as to what this, the God of the universe Mm -hmm. wants. Well, Paul answers that in verses 12 through 16. All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. So these are the Gentiles. And all who have sinned under the law, the Jewish people, will be judged by the law. So they each kind of have their own standards. For it is not the hearers of the law, that is the Jewish people, who are righteous just because they have it, but the doers of the law will be justified. And this phrase has occasioned no no Mm -hmm. end of articles and books and so on. What in the world can the apostle of faith and grace mean by saying the doers of the law will be justified? In any case, I think he meant it. When Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these not having the law are a law to themselves. Is there some kind of a universal sense of right and wrong, uh, to put it simply? They show what the law requires is written on their hearts, and their conscience bears witness, and conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secret thoughts of all. So again, we have this universal judgment of everybody brought in here. Yeah, and we also have the reference to the gospel through Jesus Christ, you know, in that last line. You know, it's passages like this where I think there, I think the warning passages in the book of Hebrews are really instructive as they, they offer us a means to compare scripture with scripture and sort of, I think, give us some direction on, on how I agree that Paul, Paul believed this, but but, you know, how, what did he exactly believe? How did he believe it? You know, like if you look at Hebrews, he consistently defines conduct, you know, or, or like going astray or warnings, you know, to, to, to not go astray and to not quit with belief. In other words, the, 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 if I could put it this way, the, the works talk is, is really another way of saying stay in the faith. Be loyal to to loop Paul in here. Be loyal to my gospel, you know, through Jesus Christ. And if if you are, you will live a certain way. You will not you'll not go off in disobedience. You'll not rebel. You'll 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 still your heart will be known. Your heart will be known by the way you conduct yourself if you stay in the faith. And nobody practices allegiance unless they believe something. 
I mean, allegiance doesn't just happen in a vacuum. You know, there's there's a lot of talk about, and I I really appreciate uh, Bates's work here on the the you know the gospel and allegiance. So way way back in 2015, or a few years before Bates wrote his book, I picked the phrase "believing loyalty in unseen realm." And when that came out, I mean, the book's not about that. It was just a chapter or two discussing this, but it's really been been helpful because I will be allegiant, you know, unto death. And, and I may stumble, but at the end of the day, I'm not changing course. I'm not choosing another God or another gospel or no gospel at all. I'm, I'm choosing this gospel as imperfect as I am, and, and in some cases as rebellious as I am. But I am, I am not trading the exclusivity of this for anything else, because I believe this is the only means of salvation. And that is going to orient what I do as far as works. It's going to demonstrate, illustrate. You actually have a really nice quote uh, to this effect in your, uh, it's the final line of your abstract in the dissertation. You have here, one's works reveal what is hidden in the heart. There's your public you know, display that you were just talking about. Either loyalty or disloyalty to God and his covenant. Again, I, I like the loyalty language. And you wrote, salvation by covenant mercy and judgment according to works are complementary. You know, you, you're, you're going to be loyal if you believe in this particular thing, i.e. the gospel. That's what you're loyal to. That's why you're loyal. And that's why your conduct is important, because it shows if you're a, if you're a poser or if you're real. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's not, it's not just lip service anymore. You must have, you know, it's, it goes back to the old things that works are essential to salvation, but they are not the meritorious cause, which is a nice ditty. And, and I think it's really helpful, but that, that's essentially where you're landing here in that statement in your, in your dissertation abstract. I really like the way you put it um, at, at the end of that. So you can't just throw away the conduct part. You know, you, 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 can't, you can't do that because then we can't, we can't validate your claim of being loyal to, to the gospel. How, how else would we validate it? How else yeah. would we know? And I think, uh, I'm glad you brought in Bates and the allegiance discussion. I think this is one of the most helpful developments we've seen for a long time. If we can begin to shift our language away from the language of faith and belief, not that they no longer play a role. Obviously, you have to cognitively believe something. Yeah, if it doesn't you want just, to commit you, yourself to you it. You don't get it by osmosis, you know. Yeah, just... so belief and, and trust. Uh, Nijay Gupta, my former colleague at Portland Seminary, uh, wrote a book on on faith and where he stressed trust. And this is yeah. remains like, a, a key like element. But I still think that allegiance uh, really defines the essential nature of biblical faith more accurately than any of the other English words that we want to use. Uh, you think of, I pledge allegiance to Christ and to God. Mm -hmm. Especially in a first century con context of suffering. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it, again, I, I, don't, I don't know how else you could articulate the relationship between the two. Um, to, in other words, to take it out of the abstract. 
again, of, of course, you have to believe something. Like Bates starts one of his books with the, the, the illustration of the Japanese soldier on the island that still thinks World War II is going on and to <laughs> yeah. illustrate, you know, the allegiance. And it, it's a great illustration, but what he, what he, what Bates, this is just a bone I'm picking because I, I, I like his work. But, but what he fails to, to even bring up is that, well, the soldier's doing that because he actually believes something. He might believe it might be the emperor's God. So I, you know, I'm going to listen to the emperor. You know, he, he might believe that, that anyone else other than the emperor telling him that the war is over is a lie. I mean, he, he believes certain things that direct and solidify his allegiance. You know, you, in other words, he doesn't just wait. You don't have a random Japanese guy wake up one day and say, I'm allegiant to the emperor. I don't really know why, but I'm going to do that. You know, no, it, it, there's, there's two sides of this coin. And I, and I do think New Testament soteriology makes both essential but they're essential in different ways. They're, there's a different, they don't have the same cause effect value or relationship to the whole. And, and in, in, you know, in the course of our theological discussion, like, and you, this is where you started even today, but it's where you start your, your books too. The whole controversy about the Reformation, because we had this particular reaction to uh, Roman Catholic teaching that has sort of, steered the discussion ever since, as opposed to going back and saying, well, what, like, what, what, what does the Hebrew Bible really say? And did, and did Jews pick up on that or not? It's, it's a weird contextualization to contextualize scripture by, and I don't want to minimize the Reformation. Yes, I think it meant something and all that, but, but why would we, why would we contextualize scripture by a 16th century document as opposed to a Second Temple Jewish doc, you know, it, it, it doesn't make any sense to me methodologically, but yet that's where we are. Well, spiritually and personally, it makes a lot of sense in that many of us have been so deeply personally influenced by sure. that movement. Yeah, that's fair, and yeah. so, you know, I think that's why explains why this is uh, such a serious discussion and in many ways, difficult discussion for a lot of people because it's very personal. You know, one of the things that that you you flirt with in the in in the book, I'm, here, here's where here's where I'm going to pick it at, you know, as we wrap up. I know we got to wrap up, but the Sanders, you know, the definition of covenantal nomism, salvation is not earned by human initiative or merits, but is granted freely by God's election and giving of the covenant. Uh, one gets in by grace within the covenantal relationship. Obedience to God's will, the law is required. So that, that, that's you, you know, riffing off Sanders. Uh, and, and what he said, I, here, here's how I would, you know, I'm, I'm going to rewrite that and it's going to be twice as long. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so go cheating. for it. <laughs> <laughs> right, I, you know, salvation is not earned by human initiative or merits, but is offered freely by God's elective decision to, number one, grant access to himself, the true God and his truth. And number two, enter into a covenant relationship with those who embrace that access and its theological underpinnings. One gains access to the true God and his covenant family by grace. And it is only through membership in this family that redemption from divine estrangement is secure. God promises to remain loyal. Here's where you flirt with, you, you flirt in the book with chesed. And I think that's an important part because God is chesed and we are expected to be you know, chesed in the relationship as well. But God promises to remain loyal. There's the noun chesed to this offer and plan. In return, he demands one's loyalty. He demands our chesed in return. 
those who embrace the offer in this access because they believe in its validity and exclusivity must be loyal to the true God. They must reject all other gods and their pseudo-promises, terms, and demands. Both loyalty and rejection of other gods are demonstrated by means of obedience to the true God's laws. Embracing another god or rejecting the true God's offer and access means everlasting destruction because other gods cannot save. Now that, that's my long rewrite. Again, again I, I get to... I get to cheat on the word count, <laughs> but, but to me that, to me, this, I hate to be so simplistic and say, it just makes sense. It makes sense because of chesed. It makes sense because of both sides of the agreement. You know, God expresses his loyalty to, to what he said he would do. And if we believe that, well, then we show it by being loyal in return. And this is what God wants. He doesn't want us to, to to do a dog and pony show, like, like, you know, do you know, do enough tricks and then I'll like you and let you in. It's not it at all, but he, he wants the response. He wants a commensurate response with his own loyalty. So I, yeah. I, I think the discussion is really helpful. Bates's book, your book. I think it just has to, it has to take place. It, not, not only just to get biblical theology, right. But I think, I think to, to navigate what often looks contradictory, but really isn't if you give it some careful thought yeah yeah no and i i certainly can affirm what you just said uh regarding sanders position if i heard you right your basic concern is the language of granting can be understood too much like a guarantee yeah you mentioned this before exactly you, and so you're you trying to adjust dis- that to avoid it you are a most discerning listener <laughs> yeah so i mean i would agree you know i don't i don't think there's a lot of us that want to look at this as sort of a guarantee regardless of how one behaves this is the problem yeah uh, it, the it's problem. it's always with regard to how one behaves in the relationship yeah, within it yeah Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think this is going to be really useful to our audience. And I, again, as we wrap up here, you know, folks, again, I, I know I recommend academic books. And if they're, if they're just too expensive, I tell you. Um, this one, though, Paul, Judaism and Judgment According to Deeds by Kent Yinger. Uh, it's paperback, so it's affordable. I highly recommend it. If you're at all interested in the data, and this is what we try to do on this podcast, we care about data. Uh, we care about primary sources, uh, the biblical text understood with, in its own, on its own terms, in its own contexts. I, I think you need to go out and get the book because this, the, the book will also be a resource, again, just to mine primary sources for this whole discussion. So this is why I wanted to have uh, Kent on, and I'm, I'm really glad you were able to do it. Well, thanks, Mike. It's always, it's always uh, for me, a joy to talk about this. It just, it's a subject that never dies, if you will. <laughs> Right. It's the it's the controversy that keeps on giving. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thanks. Thank you. All right, Mike. Really great discussion. Uh, What is the name of his book again? And again, we'll have a link, uh, a link of his book on the website page. But uh, Mm -hmm. what's the name of the book again? Yeah, the the book by uh, Kent Yanger is Paul Judaism and Judgment According to Deeds. It's by Cambridge, put out by Cambridge University Press in 1999. Well, we plan on having Dr. Kent Yinger uh, again for next week. So we'll be looking forward to that. And uh, and we'll be talking about the new perspective on Paul. So I know that's a pretty popular 
topic out there. And uh, I don't think we've really covered that on the podcast yet, have we, Mike? No, we haven't. No, we haven't. Way overdue. So we'll be getting into that next week. And uh, with that, Mike, I want to thank you, everybody, for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com.